So um, a gift someone gave me and my family here recently was some tickets to see uh, Charlie Brown uh, Christmas play live. And uh, we actually uh, even showed the movie at our house on a big screen. We had this big inflatable screen that the church has, and we borrowed it and, and showed the movie in our front yard for our neighbors, and, and some church members came. And I want to tell you that my favorite moment in that whole thing someone pointed out to me years ago and, and the whole story, the whole movie, and the play, too, they did the same. They, they, I, I was hoping, I was watching, making sure they would do it the way it was supposed to be done. There's this moment where Charlie Brown gets frustrated with how consumeristic uh, Christmas has gotten and how uh, they want aluminum trees and, and all this stuff, and, and they can't focus on what is going. And, and Charlie Brown just kind of loses it for a moment and just goes, does anyone know what Christmas is really all about? And who, who comes out? Anybody know? Linus. Linus comes out, right? So Linus comes out, and Linus quotes Luke chapter 2. Well, there's this really neat moment. So what's Linus known for? Anybody know? His blanket. He's always got his security blanket with him at all times. As a matter of fact, there's a moment earlier in the play where they told him because he was going to be a shepherd that he uh, needed to not have his blanket, and so he quickly turns it into a turban so that, uh, so that he could keep it. And, and says that, you know, you wouldn't attack a lowly shepherd, would you? And take his blanket. Um, and so his blanket's with him at all times. But as he quotes Luke chapter 2, and he says, the angel says, fear not. He drops the blanket. It's the only time in Peanuts history that you see Linus not clinging to his blanket. Fear not. I think, uh, just like Charlie Brown gets frustrated with, I think... We can, we can miss what this is really about. And so this is why this, this whole series, we've titled it Advent and Christmas Redeemed. And, and so I, I want you to see what it is to be a follower of Jesus and why it matters that he was born. And so we've been walking through that. We walked through the genealogy and we walked through the Psalms even and how it prophesied uh, him coming. And, as, and we talked about how he was our king how he is uh, the, the one promise. We went back to Genesis chapter 3, and as, as, the, as the fall happened, and, and with Adam and Eve, as Jesus was promised there, even in Genesis 3.15, to, to be the, the one that would come, and how this, this is the fulfillment of that promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So today we'll continue in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, and so if you would, stand with me as we read God's word. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Bible in front of you. It would be page 668 in that Bible that says the story on top of it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her shame, her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, my prayer would be that we would see that you are worth following. Lord, and, and with all that that means and with all that that requires, that you would be our greatest pursuit, you would be our greatest provider of peace and purpose in our lives. Lord, may we be heavily impacted by your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to look at several things. You've got, if you've got your bulletin, you can take notes there. And for the kids, I didn't, I wasn't able to, I wasn't able to tie in the kids' bulletin this morning into the sermon, but you do have a kids' bulletin on that passage. If you didn't get one, then we can get one to you uh, from one of the areas where we've got the bulletins. And it's got some games and crossword puzzles and things on this passage as well. Um, The first thing for us to look at is that following Jesus requires radical obedience. Following Jesus requires radical obedience. I want you to put yourself in the mind of Joseph as we look at this. See, if when we look in the Gospel of Luke, it really focuses more from the perception of perspective of Mary. But this one kind of gives us the Joseph's perspective on everything that went down. And so if you look at the first couple of verses and then the last couple of verses of our passage, and we just read it so you kind of know the basics of the in-betweens, I want you to see this radical obedience of Joseph. Because see, if I were to ask you who were the first followers of Jesus Christ, you might naturally say Peter, or John, Andrew, some of those guys. But I, I think really when we look at today, Joseph is the first follower of Jesus Christ that we have. Um, because I want you to see the steps of obedience he takes. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And then if you skip down to the last two verses in this passage, in this chapter. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. If we look at this, the birth, the birth of Jesus, the word there is even like Genesis. It's, it's this, almost the second Genesis, which is even, even though John doesn't give us the, uh, the Christmas story in his gospel, he, he, he kind of takes us again back to that. This is the second creation. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 5, calling Jesus the second Adam. And we see this idea of, of a restart for everything because as we've talked about, God becomes progressively more intimate with his people. That the, There was a fracture in Genesis chapter 3, like we talked about, where God was supposed to walk with his people, and now all of a sudden he can't walk with his people, they can't walk with him, because sin has fractured the world. Sin has fractured everything. Romans 8 says that all of creation was subjected to futility. The whole thing is broken at this moment, and we're awaiting the promise of Genesis 3.15 that one day offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the enemy, of the serpent. 
And then God gets progressively more intimate with his people. See, he, he lets them build, he gives them instructions on how to build a temple. And as they build this temple, he has the holy of holies. And there's this separation between God and his people still. And, and it's very exclusive who really gets to experience God's presence. But then with the coming of Christ, with the incarnation, God becomes progressively more intimate. And then the good news for us today, as we sit here at the end of 2017, is that God got even more progressively intimate with us through the Holy Spirit. And now the only exclusivity as to who stands in the presence of God in, in communion with Him is those who are children of God, those who are saved and in His family. Now we have Him with us. We are now the temple of Jesus Christ, of God, as He has made His way to us. And so this birth of Genesis, the second Genesis of Jesus. And so Joseph and Mary are betrothed, which is like a, it's like a one-year ish Jewish custom where basically you were you were you were legally married but the the bride would still live at home with mom and dad for about a year um, they would not live together they would not in in the biblical terms know each other uh, until after that year was over and there was another ceremony um, and and so they're they're connected and really the only way out of that is divorce and, or death and so now we get word that she's pregnant. And it says that Joseph is, is considering, we get to that in a minute, that as he sits and considers, this angel shows up and tells him, hey, you need to marry her, and then you need to name the boy Jesus. I want you to think for a moment the, the radical obedience it would take. Because this, this cost him a lot. See, and, and Joseph doesn't even get like this great grand ending, right? After Jesus's 13-year-old little disappearance to the temple to argue, we really don't hear anything else about Joseph. He doesn't get this grand story. We don't know great stories of leadership of him. We don't hear how great he was at, at raising Jesus. We, as a matter of fact, if he had a good reputation, which chances are he did, because he's in the line of David, chances are he has somewhat of a, uh, an honor to his name and to his family. And now he, he brings immediate shame because when he chooses to marry her, essentially to everyone looking on, he's admitting, we messed up. Did some things before we were supposed to, and that's either my kid, or he's a coward who's marrying a woman who's having a kid with some other guy. This was... This was not a small ask on God's part to Joseph. This, this, was not, this was not an easy yes for Joseph to give. I have to imagine getting word that your reputation and now your wife's reputation is going to be tarnished for the rest of your lives. Joseph even carries his abstinence on, as we see in verse 25, even until Jesus himself is born. See, I think all of us truly want someone or something to follow with just reckless abandon. As a matter of fact, there was an experiment. There's an experimenter named uh, Milgram, uh, Stanley Milgram. There was a movie that came out about it in 2015. He would do these social experiments. Some of them were considered unethical. I'm a social experiment kind of guy. I like to do social experiments on people. My wife constantly reminds me that my family is not there for me to do social experiments on. 
But I just love to see how people react. Even in college, I, would, I had this whole running social experiment in college where I would hold the door open for people. And I just wanted to see, because and, and you, from now on, you're going to notice this. When you hold the door open for people, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who just walk through the door, and then there are people who still have to touch the door. Even though you're holding the door wide open, you're standing there, there's no chance you're letting go, there's this, there's this compulsory need to touch the door, to make them feel safe and secure because they don't fully trust you. That's my theory, right? Not a doctoral study. That's my, my theory. And so from now on, pay attention to that. Open the door for people and watch them. Watch and see if they touch the door or not, right? And some of them will really struggle. So I used to really mess with people, and I wouldn't open it all the way. And then when they went to reach to touch it, I would just push it back. So if they couldn't touch it, and you could tell, man, it really messed with them, probably for the next hour or so. Well, I feel like I may have been friends with this Milgram guy because he did some pretty unorthodox uh, experiments. Some were considered unethical. I don't think I would have been friends with him on those, maybe. I hope not. But there was this one that he's famous for where he would bring in volunteers to help him run an experiment on a guy in another room uh, to see about negative reinforcement. And so if you were one of these volunteers, you would sit down and you would ask questions over an intercom. You couldn't see the guy in the other room. You could hear him, though. And so you would press the intercom button and you would ask him a question, some sort of intellectual question, yes or no, factual question. If he got it wrong, then you had to jolt him with electricity. And it started out with like small amounts of electricity, so it wasn't that big of a deal. Just a little zap, right? But then the more questions he got wrong, the, then the, the electricity would increase as it went. And, and Milgram did this experiment. He knew, here was the whole deal. The guy in the other room wasn't actually being electrocuted. He was a hired actor, and he would be in that room, and he had a script of how he was to react, and he was to get, he was on, on purpose getting enough questions wrong that you were supposed to take him to this like horrible amount of electricity that you were going to shoot him with. Milgram's experiment was that we all, lo- we all have this need to follow authority in our lives. And so Milgram was sitting in the room with the question asker, and he would say, he got that wrong, you need to press the next button. And then he would, the actor would start to go, this hurts, I don't want to do this anymore. Please don't make me do this anymore. And Milgram said it was fascinating that the large, large majority of people would still press the button because he would look at them and they would say, hey, we need to get this guy out of the room. We don't need to press the button anymore. And he would look at him and he would go, he got the question wrong, press the button. But, but the guy doesn't want to do this anymore. He's, he doesn't want to volunteer anymore. He doesn't, he, it's just starting to hurt. He got the question wrong. Press the button. And most people would press it. See, we have this need in us to follow authority. But what we do is we end up trying to choose, even subconsciously, what that authority for our life is, lives are, right? Is, is that authority our bank account? Is that authority uh, our Facebook account? Is that authority our what kind of car we drive? Is it how many friends we have? Is that authority what society says is beautiful or good looking? Is our authority whether people like us or not? Is our authority if we're religious enough or good enough? Is our authority, what is, what is it that we submit to? Because here's the deal. All of us at all times are submitting to an authority of our own choosing. Whether consciously 
or subconsciously. And what I want to tell you today is I I want to challenge you to be like Joseph today and live in radical obedience. Because you've got to catch how crazy it was what Jesus asked him to do. This was not a normal request. This was not something you could explain away. This is not something that when your friends started to question you on your decision to still marry this woman, that you could explain it real easily the way they would get it. Oh, no, no, it's not a big deal. The baby's the Holy Spirit's. Right, because everybody's just going to buy that and go with that, right? And so you, you have to realize you're making a choice that you don't even know the cost that you're walking into, but you do know a pretty good chance it's going to cost you for the rest of your life and the way that everyone sees you. So what is your authority? Who is your authority? Next thing I want you to see in the way Joseph follows Jesus is that following Jesus is inconvenient. It's inconvenient. <clears throat> but as he considered, Matthew one twenty. but as he considered these things, so Joseph is considering these things. He's considering his, how his life just got turned upside down. As he's considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph gets word that his betrothed wife, is already pregnant. Now he's a good man, he's a just man, a lawful man, and he doesn't, he doesn't want to punish her more than he has to, and so he just makes plans to quietly divorce her. But he's laying there in bed, I guess, because he's about to go to sleep, or he's laying somewhere, and he's just considering all that's happened. Sometimes when, when God shows up in your life, it's not going to be and I think you need to hear this. Sometimes when God shows up in your life, it's not going to be this beautiful, harmonious, serendipitous moment. Sometimes God's going to show up by wrecking everything you had planned. Sometimes God is going to show up biggest in your life by absolutely turning your life upside down. And it's not, listen, it's not going to at the time necessarily seem like a really good thing. We've got we to get out of our mind this cutesy picture of Christianity that following Jesus just makes everything smooth and everything good. Pastor, you're not really making this whole thing sound real appealing. Just hold on. We're going to get there. But, but I want you to see this because I think especially at Christmas... We have a tendency to make Christianity way more cutesy than it really is. This is a religion where we follow a man who died on a cross in a brutal, brutal way so that we could have our sins washed and have a relationship with the God of the universe. And we got to see that, man, sometimes when God shows up, it will not be the way you want it to be. As a matter of fact, it might change and take away the very things you desire most. I, and, and it's not following Jesus, not even just when he shows up, but just following him in the day-to-day. It's not convenient, and it's not easy. And here's where that's the problem. Look, if you're like me, 
if we're honest, I hate, I mean, I, I genuinely hate being inconvenienced, like in the smallest ways, right? I hate when I'm listening to a song I really like on the radio and you start talking to me. Don't talk right now. I want to listen to this song. I hate when I'm watching a movie and you start asking me questions and I got to answer your questions and I miss half of what that guy just said. Now I got a question and nobody can answer it. I hate when someone asks me to get up and do something as soon as I sit down. Right? It's like right when, you're, right when your bottom hits the seat, somebody goes, hey, can you go get... Oh, man. Like, why did you wait till right when I sat down? I, I hate being inconvenienced. And even the... Listen, even the smallest... I hate lines. I hate standing in line. I, I hate it. I hate just standing there and waiting. Why does Walmart only have one cashier working 17 registers? Why are there 17 registers if there's not going to be 17 cashiers? It seems like a waste to even build them, right? I mean, I hate waiting. And I, I know most of us are like that. We hate to be inconvenienced in even the slightest way. So when, when God calls us to great inconveniences, because listen to me, following Jesus, he will, he will, he will call you to a great inconvenience in your life. You've got to understand that following Jesus every day will be inconvenient. It will. And so if, if I can't even stand little inconveniences, it's going to have to be a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to get me through the big ones. And I think you too. Billy Graham said that comfort and prosperity have never enriched the world as much as adversity has. I'm going to say it again. Comfort and prosperity have never enriched the world as much as adversity has. The Lord is able to redeem these difficult situations and use adversity in our lives. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that, right? I mean, the, the, Jesus tells us that it's going to go difficult for us. His, his half-brother James tells us that we should take joy in tribulation. First Peter my, is my favorite one. First Peter, and, and Peter says, hey, don't be surprised. When it gets difficult, like why are we surprised that everyone that you've read at this point has told you it's going to get difficult? So why do we act all surprised and like why is this happening when things get difficult? Don't be surprised because following Jesus is inconvenient and it is difficult. And thirdly, following Jesus requires self-denial. Look at verse 21. You may not see self-denial here at first, but I want to talk to you about it. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now you may read that and go, okay, so where's self-denial there? You gotta understand, it was, it was one of the greatest honors of a man to get to name his children. To get to name, especially, a son. And God is here telling Joseph, one, your first kid that you'll raise won't even be yours. And I want you to marry her anyway, even though there will be crazy social stigmas that will come with this, even though people will always look at you a little bit weird. I want you to, I want you to go ahead and marry her, and then I'm going to go ahead and tell you what to name him. Because you don't even get to name him, because to name something is to have authority over it. And in a sense, you don't even really have authority over this baby. It has authority over you. So Jesus comes in as a baby over you. 
I had a friend, well, let me correct myself. I knew a guy in high school, an acquaintance, not a very nice guy, incredibly popular. I'm not going to tell you his name. Um, incredibly popular, and he knew it, man. He knew it. He was good looking. He was athletic. He came from money. Um, he had all those things going for him, and um, and he was so popular and so influential in school. He knew it, and so I remember sitting in class one day, uh, and, and as as classes were transitioning, and and he said, he said out loud, "I'm going to tell you what. I'm so popular here." And I was like, "I already don't like this guy." He goes, I'm so popular here, and this is a true story. The next guy, next three guys that walk in this room, I'm going to give them nicknames. And I guarantee you they stick till the day we graduate. This is in 10th grade. 10th grade, now one of the nicknames I'm not going to tell you, and I never will, because it's not appropriate. But two of the, the, two of the nicknames were these twins that walked in, and one of them had this bowl cut. You remember bowl cuts? I don't know why we did those, where it literally looked like you put a bowl in your head and just cut everything, Right? This one guy had a, a bowl cut, and, and so he walked in, and he called him Chili, because it looked like he had a chili bowl on his head. And so he called him Chili, and then his twin brother walked in, and so he called him Beans. Chili and Beans. To this day, both Chili and Beans have Chili and Beans on their Facebook in quotations as their nickname. He said it, and it stuck. He was right. He was right in the 10th grade. He was that popular. Now, vindication comes in college. He, he went off to to California, try to be a model. It didn't work out, and then never really made much of himself. But he had, he had authority over his peers because of how popular and cool he was, so he was able to give that name. But we've got to get that it's more than just a name. This idea of radical obedience and self-denial that comes in following Christ because, listen, Jesus will call you to a radical obedience that is inconvenient, that requires you denying yourself. This is what it is to follow Jesus. There's a story with training Arabian horses. Arabian horses are trained rigorously in the Middle Eastern deserts, and the horses learn to follow uh, their master fully. <clears throat> and this obedience is tested by depriving the horses of water for many days and then turning them loose near water. And as the horse gets to the edge of the water, just before they drink this much-needed water, the trainer blows his whistle. And if the horses have learned to obey, they turn around and come back to the trainer who then gives them as much water as they need. The trainer knows what his horses need and will not allow them to die of thirst, but he has to see that he trusts them first. God knows what his children need, and he wants to supply it for you, but we have to trust him. And it will always be in his timing. And it will always require denying self. That's what Jesus said himself, right? If anyone wants to follow me in Luke chapter 9, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. It looks like self-denial. It looks like inconvenience. It looks like radical obedience. Following Jesus is not easy. It is not convenient. And it will not be everything that you think it ought to be. It will be way better in many ways, but it will be far different than what you pursue. Even John the Baptist himself says, I must decrease and he must increase. Tim Keller, I've got a long quote here for you. I want you to see that all this is worth it. Tim Keller says it like this. In Jesus, you stop having to prove yourself. 
because you know it doesn't really matter in the end whether you are a failure or a king. All you need is God's grace. And you can have it. In spite of your failures, after you know Him, you want your life to please Him. But you don't have to clean up your life in order to know Him as Savior. And that brings rest inwardly. See, following Jesus is worth it. Yeah, it requires radical obedience. It is inconvenient. And it requires self-denial. It doesn't sound real cute or fun or even necessarily Christmassy. But, but, it's, but it's who Jesus is and it's who he's called us to be in following him. But I want to tell you that yes, it is those things and it's difficult, but it's worth it. And why is it worth it? Let's look at it. Look at verses 21 through 25. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Following Jesus is worth it because God keeps his word. Right? See, this is remind, he reminds you here, Matthew does, as he tells you the story. This all happened because it was promised. That's why it happened. It happened because God promised this would happen. Right? When we looked at Genesis chapter 3, we saw the first promise. When we looked at Psalm 80, 89, we looked at uh, the promise of the Davidic covenant, which, which Joseph is tied into when the angel calls him out. Right? He calls him, the angel calls him by name, Joseph, and then he says, son of David. And he's tying him, reminding us again of this Davidic covenant, just like he did in the genealogy. We looked at the genealogy that the kind of family Jesus came from gives us a clue of the kind of family Jesus would come for. Right, That he came from a family of broken and messed up people because he's coming for a family of broken and messed up people, which is really good news for you and I, right? I mean, it's really good news that Jesus comes from broken, messed up people and that he loves broken and messed up people because I don't know about you, but if I'm entirely honest with you, you'll see that I'm pretty broken and messed up. And I think you would admit the same thing if you were brave enough to be honest about it. But we can... Follow Jesus because the birth of Jesus is evidence, not the only evidence, but it is evidence that God keeps his word. And when we look through the scriptures about the promises that God makes for us, about an abundant life, which you got to be careful how you define that, about an abundant life, that, about a peace that only he can give that will rule our hearts. See, even the promises, not just about heaven, right? Because we can talk about, well, isn't this whole thing about whether you go to heaven or hell? When you die, yes. But as of right now, what is it that you live for? What is it that, that you find peace in? What is it that you find purpose in right now, today, tomorrow? What is it that you really, truly find purpose in? And I hope it's not presence, and I hope it's not any of those things. I hope tomorrow you find your purpose 
truly. Not, not as an add-on, not as a cutesy little story before you open the presence, but there, there really becomes this purpose in your life tomorrow that God himself came to earth, that he keeps his word, that he said he would, and you know what? He said he's coming back. He said he's coming back, and he said that every knee will bow at his name. Every knee will bow at his name. And if you haven't bowed it yet, I would encourage you to do so today. Because if you don't, at some point here in your time on earth, you will. But then it'll be too late to spend an eternity with him. What is your life about? Jesus is worth following because he is our savior. It said, they will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. Jesus and Joshua really are essentially the same name that God saves. Jehovah saves. See, he would be named that, and what's important about this is that he's our Savior. Not just that he was born. Christmas without Easter isn't very good news. It's just kind of weird. Christmas without Easter is a really weird birth story. He's worth following because he saves us from our sins. And I want you to get this. He saves you from the penalty of your sins. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, For there is therefore now no condemnation. No, zero. Zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, washed by his blood, then no matter what sins, what failures you bring to him, they're washed. See, Jesus saves us from the penalty of our sins, but he also saves us from the power of our sins. Because then, if you go on in in Scripture, it tells us about what we talk about as sanctification, right? Progressive sanctification, this growth where we become more like Jesus. We push sin out of our lives and bring more of Jesus into our lives. It's this progressive process of growing each day, each season of our life, more and more like Jesus, where we cry the cry of John the Baptist that he must increase and I must decrease. That process, how that happens, is empowered by Jesus, not by your willpower. You don't have enough willpower. Your, your willpower at best will exchange one sin for another. You may, in your own willpower, get rid of a bad habit in your life, but you will just turn to something else that is equally sinful. It may be more socially acceptable, but it's equally as sinful. And it's through the power of Jesus that we are able to grow from the power of sin. So the penalty, the power, and then ultimately, yes, one day when we go to heaven, we will be freed from the presence of our sin. And that'll be great. Won't it be nice to not struggle anymore? To not fight against your selfishness and your pride and your lust and your greed and your slothfulness and your envy Wouldn't it be nice to just go one day without having to fight your sin, having to go to war against the sin in your life? Wouldn't it be amazing to just sit in peace with your heavenly Father? Yes, that would be good. I long for that day. I long for a day when sin doesn't tempt me. 
And if you tell me that sin doesn't tempt you right now, I want to tell you, you sit in maybe one of the most dangerous spots that can be. Because you've just been blinded. Because you do not walk this earth. You do not walk this earth and not be tempted. Jesus himself was tempted, right? One day we'll be free from that presence of sin. That's as good as it gets, right? Jesus frees us. Jesus is our savior, saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. And the last one, Jesus is worth following because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God among us. When we get to the Advent season, I'm always going to push this part of it so big because you got to get this. There's no other religion that will give you this. There's no other religious system or leader where God himself comes among us and walks with us so that we can be with him. See, the the very fact that Jesus came to earth and put on skin as a vulnerable baby, he came into this world... That's a, that is a radical display of God's love. That he would enter into our world. You've you got to get what he, what he had to sacrifice to come here. What he left to come here. He left sitting at the right hand of the Father with the angels praising him and singing to him in perfection with no weeping, with no mourning. And he came as a baby and had to be fed and had to struggle to walk. I had to get tired and go to sleep. It didn't sound like a big deal to us. But imagine never having to do those things. He did it because he loves you. So yes, following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus requires radical obedience. It requires you not being in charge. It requires no matter what he calls you to. And listen, if, if you don't feel like God's ever called you to something crazy, I'm, I'm, I promise you, you haven't been listening. Read the scriptures and find me one normal story in here. Find me one normal story of just a, hey, go give that homeless guy five bucks. Right? Following Jesus calls us to radical obedience, radical in every area of your life, in a way where people go, man, you're a Jesus freak. You're so weird. Why do you let this impact every aspect of the way you do? Because it has impacted every part of who I am. See, following Jesus means radical obedience. Following Jesus is inconvenient. If you have not walked an inconvenient path in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, you're walking the wrong path. God is not interested in your lazy attendance in some building. He's not. That doesn't make God go, hey man, good effort, appreciate it. It's going to be inconvenient to follow Jesus. And it's going to require self-denial. If you, have, if you have walked an easy, convenient path, then you have not walked the path of Christ but it's worth it. Amen? It's worth it. It really is. It's worth it because he is the God who keeps his word.
Because he's the God who saves us from the penalty and the power and the presence of our sins and because he is God who is with us. And that's what the Christmas story is about. It's about God being here with his people intimately and to save us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would praise you and honor you. Lord, that we would be willing to give our lives to you. Lord, that we would not do it out of begrudging obedience or religious adherence, but that we would truly fall in love with you. And as a result, we would want our lives to please you. It would be our desire to be obedient. That we would willingly walk into an inconvenient calling that requires us to deny ourselves so that we could have you in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.